Hey, Dr. Alan Christensen here. So how can you boost your metabolism? You know, I see a lot of articles talking about metabolism boosters, and I get lots of questions about that. And it's an important thing. You know, we've got a sense that our body burns fuel at a rate that could be higher or lower, or we could have more or less flexibility for our metabolism. And I've, I've been in this situation to where you struggle to eat healthy food, eat the good amounts, and your weight or your waist just don't seem to respond the way they should. And so we think about what is wrong with the metabolism in that situation. And there's a couple of conundrums of metabolism. So one is that it's really tied to appetite and body size. So paradoxically, the bigger someone is, the higher their metabolism is because the more flesh they're keeping functional, <laughs> the more fuel they need for that. So with weight loss, there's often a change in metabolism. Now, many think about metabolism going down with age, and it does, but age is not really why. Most of us lose muscle mass as we age, and that's primarily tied to our dietary protein intake. It's secondarily tied to our activity, but it's mostly tied to our protein intake. We'll talk more about that. And so as we lose muscle mass, our metabolism goes down. But this is a classic scenario to where something that's not in good balance, that's amplified for decades, looks like aging. It's not aging. It's almost like saying that you know, driving your car will break your rotors. And if you've got the lug nuts on the wheel that are loose, it will break your rotors if you drive even a few miles. But it's not a normal problem from driving. And in the same way, slow metabolism is not a normal, inevitable consequence of age. Once you look at people and their age and you compare their muscle mass, age no longer matters. It's all about muscle mass. It's not about age. The other big thing about metabolism is that dieting can wreck it. <laughs> and this is not a mystery and it's not a secret and it's a truism that if you're reducing your food intake by more than a third for more than six weeks, you can radically slow your metabolism and your body's compensating. You know, your body doesn't want you to starve to death. So you will burn less fuel if you go down too much on your fuel intake. And the way this works primarily is that your body stops making as much active thyroid hormone. To be really precise, your liver stops converting T4 to T3, and it makes more of that intentionally into reverse T3. And this slows the metabolic rate. Now, any way your fuel intake, your food intake goes down by too much, that can happen, but this is especially a problem on ketogenic, low carb, or low protein diets. Those are even more apt to trigger that. And the reason for that, for the ketogenic and low carb diets, is because we need some insulin to make that thyroid hormone conversion. So too much insulin certainly is a sign of health complications and health risks. But far too little is also a problem for our body. When it's too low, we cannot make glutathione and we cannot activate our thyroid hormones. So those are other ways in which we really suppress the metabolism. So let's talk about some of the metabolism boosters that are out there and they're talked about. Um, number one we hear a lot about is caffeine. And it's been studied, it is a metabolism booster, but let's get into the details a little bit. So if you're talking about 270 plus milligrams per day, you can see short-term increases of metabolism on the order of 10 to 30 calories per day. 
So when you get down to the brass tacks, boy, let me just think about this real quick. So an ounce of almonds is about 160 calories and there's about 30 almonds in an ounce, roughly, roughly 30. So we're talking about what, um, 30, 160. So that's about like half of an almond. So yeah, so three, three large Starbucks can give you about half of an almond extra of food. <laughs> and let's say you did six of those. Well, now we've got what? A almond, maybe two almonds as an outlier, but this is not a radical change. This is not something that takes it to where things are not working and now they're working well. Now this is extremely subtle. There's another problem with caffeine that's true of stimulants in general, and they stimulate alpha receptors in the fat cells. So if you're drinking coffee or if you're taking like back when we had the ephedra products in the market or back when methamphetamine was used for weight loss not that long ago, they wouldn't cause waste loss. So even if you did amp yourself up enough on stimulants, you would never really see waste loss. If anything, you would see muscle wasting. And let me just make a silly extreme point to, to prove the example. Think about the, the horrible images they show of someone who's in late stage addiction with crystal meth or a stimulant. They're not buff, you know. They, they may be emaciated, but they're certainly not buff. They're, they're not anyone, they're not a figure you would emulate. You wouldn't say, oh, I'd love to look like that in a bathing suit. And that's the thing, the, the stimulants only cause muscle wasting. They don't cause waste loss. And that's because they increase the alpha receptors in your fat cells. So what that means is your fat gets first in line at the cafeteria. You know, whatever fuel you've got coming in, your fat gets first and gets preferential hierarchy over that. So stimulants are just not effective things for weight loss. This is even true, sadly, of green tea. So the extent to which it raises metabolism is small, but what it's really doing is diverting metabolism away from muscle towards the fat. We'll also hear carnitine often put on the short list of metabolism boosters. And I can understand the logic, and let me just walk you through this. So carnitine is an amino acid, and it's a conditionally essential amino acid. So what that means is we normally make all we need, but there are some circumstances, mostly rather rare genetic disorders, in which we cannot make it. And what it does is that it helps shuttle fats into the cell, across the, after they're across the cell membrane, it helps guide them into the mitochondria. So across the cytosol, the fluid of the cell, into where fat gets burned. And you think about that, and it's easy to intuitively say, oh wow, wouldn't we want more of that? We wouldn't want to be better at burning fat. But here's the deal, carnitine is a nutrient. So I think about the analogy of like keys to a car. So if you don't have keys, if you don't have carnitine, if you genetically cannot make it, you cannot burn fat effectively. And there are problems that occur from triglycerides building up in the blood and intracellularly and complications from that in these rare genetic disorders. But when you've got carnitine, like if you've got the keys for the car, the car starts. More keys do not equate a faster car. <laughs> they just mean the car works. And if the key's gone, the car can't work at all. But 20 keys doesn't make your car into a hot rod, unless it already is. <laughs> and the same thing with carnitine. Once you've got enough there in your cells, which you pretty much already have, um, more of it won't make them work better. 
And we've seen many studies in which people have done trials, seeing if adding it in causes weight loss or fat loss, and it just does not. It is not performed in those capacities. So the other thing we've seen talked about a lot is chromium picolinate. And it's a similar mindset. So just think, think about this thought process and see if you don't notice it show up elsewhere in nutrition. So chromium is necessary for glucose tolerance factor. And we don't even know exactly what glucose tolerance factor is, but it's something that helps the body utilize glucose and take it inside the cells. And that can be fat cells, muscle cells, wherever. So in the absence of chromium, we think glucose tolerance factor may not work as well. And the body can have more glucose outside the cells. Well, getting glucose in the cells doesn't help weight loss. <laughs> Actually, on the extreme example of that, type 1 diabetes where no glucose gets in the cell, that's associated with weight loss, with tissue wasting. So raising the ability to assimilate glucose into the cells, you wouldn't think it would be an effective weight loss strategy. And chromium picolinate, we need chromium. It is an essential mineral in our diets. But back to the key analogy, it's not the more the merrier. If it's gone, it's bad. If you've got it, things work as they should. But more doesn't hack the system and doesn't make it go faster or better. And we've seen this. Numerous clinical trials have shown that chromium does not cause lasting weight loss, even, even short-term weight loss. Other weight loss hacks. Let's talk about a few more, and I'll talk about a few that have been shown to be effective. So we've got the non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And it's pretty fascinating. It turns out that we burn most of our fuel either just keeping our body warm or by fidgeting. <laughs> and that's probably more than we burn from exercise for most of us. So this can be a fair amount. And some have talked about how do you raise your NEAT, your non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And you can deliberately fidget and move more. Probably a good thing. It's probably true that our health suffers from prolonged sedentation. Sedentation? Prolonged times of being sedentary? I think that's better. But if we're stuck still too long, our blood does not move and our bodies get sicker. So it's probably good to move more. But in terms of this being a radical game changer, the tough thing is that if you do work hard enough to increase it radically, you're going to be hungrier. So in proportion, your appetite will go up. And now all you're doing is fighting against your appetite. And you might as well just fight about it. If you're just going to fight against your appetite, there's no point in giving you more appetite to fight against. <laughs> just fight against it where it is, and that's just going to be as effective. So that's the drawback about NEAT as a weight loss strategy. Other one we see is cold exposure. And this can be living in a colder climate, cold water plunges, you know, being in colder rooms. This may change metabolism by upwards of 50 or 100 calories a day with the most dramatic measures. So now we're talking about a dozen almonds, <laughs> you know, a dozen or 13 almonds. But also we'll see compensatory changes in appetite. We're going to be that much hungrier. Um, last one to talk about spicy foods, capsaicin especially. This may be 30 to 50 calories per day. If you like some spicy things, they're probably good. Way too much may be an irritant to the esophagus, but in general, it's healthy to have a lot of culinary spices in the diet. But they don't cause radical weight loss on themselves. So what are some big needle movers? Well, probably the biggest one is having healthy thyroid function. So if someone's thyroid hormones are not ideal, that can slow their metabolism by three to 600 calories per day or more. You know, I think about one patient that just 
was so memorable to me. She told me about how she struggled really hard with her weight. And when you looked at her, she was, I had just seen her for the first time and she was probably five, six, maybe 105, 110 pounds. And she looked athletic. So her, her approach was that, Hey, my weight is a big problem. I think my thyroid's off, but no one's really picked up on that. And I first, my first impulse was she didn't have a realistic sense about her body shape. I'm like, huh, your weight's fine. You're skinny mini, you know, you look really healthy. But then she talked more about what she did to maintain her weight. So she showed me her food logs. She was keeping her food at a thousand calories per day or less. And then she showed me her activity logs. She was averaging eight to 10 miles per day of running. And with those two things, she could maintain her weight. And I thought, holy mackerel, I, I misjudged. I prematurely judged this. And sure enough, she had bad thyroid function. When that did correct, she could eat a normal amount of food, like about 50% more than she was, 50 to 100% more than she was. And she could exercise for enjoyment, but she wasn't a slave to just killing it every day in the gym and like not eating. So that's a big factor. And we can see that be hundreds of calories. One more note along that line, I've seen this many times too, to where someone is on thyroid treatment, but they're on T4 only medication. And that alone, going from a T4 only medication to natural thyroid may free up metabolism by 300 or 400 calories per day. Even if you're on enough, I've seen that oftentimes. We think the T3 and especially the T2 in natural thyroid is part of that. So another big needle mover, the cortisol slope. So having a stable cortisol slope versus being stressed or crashed or wired or tired, having the slope backward. So this is something to where it also changes that hierarchy of fuel to go towards adipose tissue versus skeletal muscle. So on an extreme here, we think about Cushing's syndrome or Cushing's disease. There's times where people take high amounts of prednisone or they've got a bad cortisol slope internally. And in both of those states, what we see is that there's truncal obesity, like this barrel-shaped body, and the extremities just wither. So when prednisone and hydrocortisone were first made, we thought they were just the miracle drugs to end all miracle drugs. You know, antibiotics were still exciting because they were still solving all these difficult to resolve chronic infections. And then all of a sudden, now we've got these things that stop all inflammatory conditions. So we thought, oh, this was another holy grail. But then they saw people who were given a lot of oral prednisone or oral hydrocortisone for something like arthritis or asthma, they did much better short term in their inflammatory symptoms, but their muscles wasted away and they gained all this mass in their trunk. So to be really precise, they didn't always have weight changes, but they had negative waist changes. So a healthy cortisol slope is a huge thing. And we see that even those who are not taking hydrocortisone or prednisone, it's the same thing for your internal cortisol production. When you've got the right amounts in the right time, your body can do a better job using visceral fat for fuel and maintaining healthy muscle mass. So here's the other big needle mover and that's dietary protein intake. And once we talk about protein, there's often, you know, there's a lot of valid concerns about just commercial animal protein production, totally valid concerns. The humanitarian side of this, the environmental concerns, the ethical concerns. 
and water usage, deforestation, totally valid problems. Um, I'm excited for what's been called clean meat or basically cellular grown meat where they're not growing animals, they're just growing the meat that we, that we want, that we use. So that'll be a great revolution. In the meantime, if we can do our meats ethically sourced and clean sourced the best we can, that's important. However, the same arguments against protein also then argue that we cannot get protein deficient. And it's true, but it's also a non-issue. It's a bit of a straw man argument. It's almost like saying no one gets scurvy anymore, so why should we bother eating plant foods? <laughs> you know, no one really gets scurvy much. There actually are a few isolated cases, but it's not the risk for the average American. However, we still know that a plant food intake much higher than offset scurvy gives other health benefits. And the exact same thing is true for protein. So the amount that you need to offset quash your core or protein calorie malnutrition, yeah, above that, there's additional benefits. And some big ones are that protein is one of the biggest factors for affecting body composition. And it's not just getting X number of grams, it's how much protein you get compared to your total diet. So protein per fuel ratio. And I think about fuel, it's like carbs and fats or exogenous ketones if you take them. Even alcohol would go in that bucket. So how much protein do you have compared to all the rest? That's a big thing that controls your body composition. And then your body composition is the biggest variable that controls your metabolic rate. So having a quarter or a third of your diet come from protein, that can change your metabolism by 300 or more calories per day. And it can also partition it to where the fuel you get goes more towards the muscle mass. Speaking of muscle mass, and that's the other big needle mover, is having your muscles activated. So it doesn't mean they've got to be throttled or worn out, but to have them well stimulated activates and increases the number of GLUT4 receptors. And these are like the opposite of those alpha receptors, the alpha-2 receptors in the fat tissue. So we don't want stimulant to give us alpha-2 receptors in the fat, but we do want exercise to give us more GLUT4 receptors in the muscles. That way that fuel goes in the muscles. And rather than take the rice or the avocado or whatever else we get fuel from, rather than make fat out of that, we make that into stored fuel in the muscles healthy muscle glycogen, healthy muscle triglyceride, GLUT4 is the key behind that. And you know, it's, it's exercise, but it's not only do HIT. It's not only do CrossFit. It really is variety. So do some long, slow activities. Do long hikes, long walks. Do some brief, higher intensity activities. Do some things in between. Aerobics are good. Aerobic exercise is healthy. Strength training is good. Strength training is healthy. Do a nice mixture of both. Your time investment in terms of total minutes of exercise per week, uh, the benefit to reward ratio is highest for aerobic activities. So you'll want to spend the bulk of your time on aerobic activities. Strength training is also important, but it doesn't take as much time to get the same benefit. And if your schedule is limited like most of us ours, most of ours are, <laughs> then most days do some good aerobic activity of 30 to 60 minutes. A couple times a week, do some strength training. And that's the best way to activate those GLUT4 receptors. So let me just close out talking about the real issue, metabolic flexibility. Because it's not just the metabolism on a thermostat. It's not just high or low. If it's just high, then appetite's going to go up. 
So the real trick is metabolic flexibility. So think about this. Um, for me, this changed at about mm, nine or 10 years of age. But before then, there was a time in which I had a healthy body weight and I didn't really think about or restrict or try to control my food intake. I ate when I was hungry. If there was dessert, I ate the dessert and I played when I felt like it and things all worked out. I got enough food. Uh, I, I was growing, of course, and I maintained a good, healthy body size. Now, there was a point around 12 years of age to where, um, no, 10 to 12, where that really changed for me to where the amount of food I wanted and the amount of activity that I liked to do spontaneously didn't take me to a good place. They caused me to gain weight and I ended up being more and more sedentary. And it wasn't deliberate, but that was my metabolism changing. So when I was younger, I had a flexible metabolism. I, what, I, what I didn't need that day, I stored away in my liver. I made glycogen or triglycerides. And then when there was a lot of that there, I didn't think about it, but I just wanted to do stuff. I'd want to go run around outside or in Minnesota, go sledding or play out in the snow in the winter or do whatever else. I was spontaneously driven to do more activity. And if there was a time in which, you know, if I was late for a meal because I was playing, I never thought about that. I never thought, oh, geez, I've got to go have supper right now. Let's stop what we're doing. That didn't happen. You know, even if I was due for food, my liver pulled out the extra and I just kept going. I was fine. So that's metabolic flexibility. And that's what you should have. When you lose that, you're on this, this knife edge to where too much food is weight gain and too little food is exhaustion, fatigue, cravings, you know, not brain fog, all that. And so if you try to lose weight by just food restriction over the long haul, you don't feel well. You're fighting up against your appetite and you, you're not performing at your best and you know it. So the trick is regaining that metabolic flexibility to where your body takes any extra, makes it into fuel, and spontaneously you want to do more things. You want to be more active. And that's all about a healthy liver. So to regain that, it does take a good balance of healthy, good carbs, but also changing how the liver is working itself and making sure that any wastes are taken out, it's got the adequate micronutrients, you've got the essential amino acids to release that. And I think about this more as a short-term project to reset the metabolism. Stay tuned for the focus on that in the coming book, in the coming program, but you can change it over the course of a few weeks. You can make it to where a bad metabolism can regain its flexibility and you can feel like you were when you were a kid again and it all just worked out. <laughs> so I hope that was useful about metabolism boosters, some that don't work, some that do work, and what the real fix can look like. Dr. C here with you. Take great care. We'll talk again really soon.